right, we're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 12, and then jump over to Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 8. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on top of the mountain, all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate, and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary, and say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all of your abominations, and admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood. You have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. This is the very word of God. Well, we are wrapping up our study of the book of Ezekiel by studying these last few weeks, Ezekiel's final vision in chapters 40 to 48. We said last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, that these nine chapters present to us three basic ideas. You can divide Ezekiel's final vision into three general topics. Uh, The first one we looked at last week, a new temple. The second one, a new Torah or a new law. And then the third is a new division of the land. So last week, we examined the crucial symbol of Israel's temple. It's the place where God comes to dwell with his people and from where he manifests his power. A key point that we are making, that we were making last week, is that temples in the ancient world were not mainly, and certainly not only, religious buildings. They represented the entire scope of a nation's culture, worldview, economics, politics, and power. So when Jesus announced the destruction of Israel's temple and claimed that he would then rebuild it in three days, you can see why so many people would be upset. It wasn't just an unbelievable claim. He's going to do some magic thing. It was a national threat. It wasn't until after Jesus had been raised from the dead, the New Testament tells us, that his disciples understood what it was that he was claiming. He was claiming to be the new temple. 
I think, the very one that Ezekiel was prophesying about in these texts that we're looking at here at the end of our study. The temple that he would build back in three days was his own resurrected body. He would be the way, the truth, and the life, the only means by which anyone could have access to the God of Israel. As Jesus, of course, said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's a very serious thing to claim. And were it not for the resurrection, the claim would have been completely forgotten, thrown away in the dustbins of history. Christianity would never have gotten off the ground. But now, because of the resurrection of Jesus, his shocking claim to be Israel's temple, that place of national culture, worldview, economics, power, politics, has been validated. And so what it means to be a Christian, then, is to come to understand that in the kingdom of God, there is no need for a temple. Not because what temples signify is no longer important. When John sees his vision of the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, in Revelation 21, he says... There was no temple there because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Temples are no longer necessary in the new creation because what those temples were built to represent is now been manifest in its fullness. We don't need a temple because we now have as our temple God himself in the person Of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm well aware that such a claim like this may not mean a whole lot to Christians today. We really have to understand what a temple is and what it represents before we can understand the impact. Look, if Jesus is the temple, then to believe in Jesus is not mainly, and certainly not only, a religious claim. To believe in Jesus is also a cultural, economic, and political claim just as much. To be a Christian is a worldview, a perspective on power and its rightful use. As C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity for the same reason I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything. So as we move now into the central section of Ezekiel's final vision, what we find here is something like a new Torah, a new law. Just as Moses received the Torah from God and delivered it to his people. So now Ezekiel is told here in Ezekiel 43, verse 12, where I think this second division begins, this is the law of the temple. So this morning, I want to talk to us about the law. It's one of those things that Christians are often quite confused about and 
given my upbringing and my past, I have a burden to help us think this through. For many Christians, the law is essentially a thing that kind of hangs over you like a burden. I got to try to keep all of God's laws in order for God to accept me. Some of you have come from traditions that have felt more or less like that, even if that was never explicitly said. But for others, other Christians, the law is simply a thing of the past, a thing that is done away with now that Christ has come. And basically, the law no longer has any relevance for us, no longer has any demands on our life. We are simply waiting to die or for Christ to return. No more work to do. So what is the law? Especially in Ezekiel's vision of a new temple, of a new creation. What's the whole point of a law now that Christ has come? Why do we need it? How do we go about keeping it? So what is the law? What's its purpose? Why do we need it? And how do we go about keeping it in this new temple vision? So first, as Ezekiel relates to us what he calls this law of the temple, what he hears is a law, the law of the temple, let's be sure that we have at least a, an elementary understanding of what the law is for, what it is all about. So the word law here, we've already said this a couple times, is the Hebrew word Torah. And when you hear the translation of Torah as law, I know what you're thinking, because I think this way too. Law for us is basically something that fits within a legal framework. The problem is the word Torah is not primarily that. It would be more precise to render the word instruction or even teaching. Now, I, I'm asking you to let that sit in for just a moment. Israel's law was more like a curriculum than it was a legal code. Its whole purpose was to instruct, to teach Israel how to be the people of God. It was not a list of rules that Israel had to pass in order to become God's people. For the answer to that question, how has Israel become the people of God, can only be answered this way, by the unilateral, sovereign, free, gracious act of God. God makes this quite clear throughout the Old Testament. Israel was chosen to be God's people, not because of any goodness or merit within them, but simply because God chose to set his love upon them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. So mark this now. From the very beginning of Israel's existence, the law, the Torah, was not a means by which Israel could, by keeping it, finally become the very people of God, one would only need to recall Israel's story, the Exodus story, to remember how it was that they had become God's people. Israel's laws come after the Exodus, after God has rescued them, delivered them out of their bondage, 
delivered them out of their slavery. And Israel's laws are given so that the people of Israel could learn, could be instructed how to be the people of God in practice in the same way that they already were by grace. Now, why would that matter? It was not, again, primarily, and certainly not only, for religious reasons. It was not because Israel hoped to keep God appeased by their good deeds. you got to get that out of your mind if you're going to make sense of the Old Testament as well as the New. It was rather because Israel understood that the whole reason why God had chosen them to be his people in the first place was, I like what Pastor John said, he didn't choose them and then forget everybody else. But by choosing them, God's intention was that through them, he could extend his wise and gracious rule to the rest of the world. That was the reason for Israel to be chosen as God's people. God set his love on Israel, or if you would rather, God rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt so that through them, God could extend his love, his wise and gracious rule to the whole world. So, when Israel broke the Torah, didn't follow the curriculum, broke God's gracious covenant with them to extend his sovereign rule over all creation through them, what, what could God do? What would be the only righteous response, the only faithful response of God? He would have to, of course, then uphold his end of the covenant, bring upon them the judgment that they deserved. The consequence for covenant breaking throughout the Old Testament was carried out exactly the way God had warned. The temple was destroyed, the land was invaded, and the people were sent into exile. Covenant curse, the faithfulness of God. But Ezekiel's temple vision at the end of his prophecy to a people in exile is the promise that they would be brought back out of their exile, returned to the land. The long night of exile would end. Indeed, this was more than a promise. It was a confident expectation, a hope. Because Ezekiel in his final vision, as we've said, sees not just a blueprint for a temple. He sees a temple already built such that he can, he can see its measurements. He knows how big it is. Ezekiel had already seen a temple in the holy city. Ezekiel has already now seen, chapter 43, earlier in the chapter, God returning to his temple and filling it with his glory. Ezekiel has already seen that as well. All that remained for Ezekiel and his fellow exiles is for finally the people to be brought back home, returned from their exile to once again worship God in his temple. And that is where the Old Testament ends. That's the expectation. That is the great story of Israel. One day, very soon, the people believe. God will, the, the people will be able to resume 
their splendid and ordered worship of God, of Yahweh in his temple. And when that day comes, the great hope of Israel is that when that day comes, everything will be right again in his world. God will once again be reigning through his people for the benefit of the whole world. But until that day arrives, what should Israel be doing? Well, follow the curriculum. Keep the Torah. They are to live in the way that God had instructed them to live while waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Those who did so could be sure that they would inherit the kingdom of God. But it is simply not correct to say then that Israel was thereby trying to merit their salvation, to earn their way into the kingdom of God. The works of the law, a phrase you'll see a lot in the New Testament, was not simply a strategy, or it was not at all a strategy for obtaining divine favor by moral obedience. Some people, of course, probably made it that way, but that's not its purpose. That's not why it was given. The Torah was not read as instructions for how, in our terms, to get to heaven. No, the Torah was a covenant, and its works were there to signal, to to signify, to mark out who belonged to the true people of God, who those were who would be vindicated when at long last the kingdom of God had arrived. So accordingly, the arrival of the kingdom of God would, would not mean the end of the Torah, but rather its fulfillment. And those who entered the kingdom could no more abandon the, abandon the law, abandon the Torah after the kingdom had arrived than they could abandon the new temple. That's why in Ezekiel's vision, we find not only a new temple, but a new law, a new Torah. Now, what does all of that mean for us today? Well, the Christian claim is that Ezekiel's final vision, what we're studying right here, has found its fulfillment. Jesus is the new temple. The New Testament makes that startling claim. In Jesus, we see the glory of God once more filling his temple. In Jesus, we have the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth and the end of the long night of exile. So then what about the Torah? Well, here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. So we see that Jesus was working right here within the Old Testament story and also claiming to be the long-awaited fulfillment of it. So here is this one thing that I am very eager to get my mind wrapped around and help you do as well. To the extent that we do not believe that Ezekiel's vision has been fulfilled, you read Ezekiel 40 to 48 as something that's still 
waiting to come in the future. To that extent, we Christians are just going to keep struggling to figure out what is the place of law-keeping, of obedience. We simply will not see its purpose as anything other than that which either condemns us and makes us guilty or as something to put away now that Christ has come. Or, to try to say it more bluntly, when you read in your New Testament imperatives, commands, demands about how we should live our lives, we will always view them with a little bit of suspicion as something that maybe is there to keep us away from the gospel of grace. It is true, of course, that the coming of Christ and his kingdom has brought with it a change, a pretty significant one, to the Torah. Ezekiel's Torah points us in that direction. As I mentioned two weeks ago, some of its requirements have changed from what we find in the Mosaic Law. By the way, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12 tells us that when there is a change in the priesthood, there is, quote, necessarily a change in the law as well. So, make no mistake, the coming of Christ has radically transformed God's expectations for those who are his true people. No doubt about that. As the fulfillment of the law, Christ and Christ alone is the only legitimate badge of covenant membership for the people of God. So you get to eat your bacon with joy. A dramatic change in the law. But now, what are we who believe in Jesus to do? Rescued, saved by a new exodus. Delivered from a long night of exile. Brought into the perplexing reality of a kingdom of God. An age of the future that has already broken in. Overlapping with this present age. How how are we supposed to live in that time between the times? This is where the Torah, Ezekiel's Torah, continues to be our help. Because the things that God requires, the demands, the expectations, the curriculum, if you will, are given to us so that we know how to live our lives as Christians. It's not meant to be a threat over you. The law in Christ is not your enemy. That we need the law of God. Now, why? Why do we need it? Well, first of all, it is so that we can maintain and enjoy fellowship with God that Christ has given to us by his grace. Now, in chapter 44, God declares to Ezekiel that there are to be no more abominations, no more profaning God's temple. And you are in Christ... Your bodies, right here in this room, the New Testament says, are the temple of the living God. The the Spirit of God dwells within you if you are in Christ. So, of course, God has demands. He has expectations for how our bodies should live and move and be in this world. Because God cares about our lives 
because God cares about his kingdom that he has sent us to live in as his citizens. So throughout these chapters, and we're, we're gonna, we're gonna just, you're going to have to have your Bibles open. You can skip it. This is an, a new Torah seen in a, a vision that would make sense to Ezekiel in his day. And so, so much of this depends on understanding Leviticus. We don't have time to go back and unpack Leviticus again. We've already preached that, by the way, a few years ago. So we don't have time to read through all this, compare all the different, all the different laws that are given here. So I'm just giving us a, a general perspective here. Here's what you're going to find, at least two things, why we need this law, this new law in Christ, in this vision. Throughout these chapters, we read first about our restored worship with God in his temple. There's a proper way to approach and worship God. Leviticus couldn't make that more clear. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament couldn't make that more clear. You don't get to just worship God however you feel like it. No, God has demands, expectations on how he must be worshiped. So it begins here with Ezekiel's description of the altar. Now, the altar was the place where God and all humanity would meet. It was, it's tempting to see the laws in these chapters as mainly negative rules. Who likes rules? Who likes laws? But again, this is a curriculum. It's instruction. These are not rules that are intended to restrict access to God. No, these are given in order to see that everyone has access to the Creator, to the Savior. Consequently, there's an emphasis throughout these chapters on at least three aspects of the temple's restoration. First, there are temple officials, priests and Levites, that are reinstated to their places of worship and places of service. You see that in chapter 44. Second, in chapter 45, there's regulations about the sacrificial offerings that are to be offered. Then, in chapters 45 and 46, we read about a ritual calendar, the annual feasts and festivals that were established and were to be maintained. So temple officials, sacrificial offerings, and some sort of an annual or ritual calendar. Now, when you turn to the New Testament, what you don't find is no echoes about any of those things. You find pretty clear echoes, and yet it's been transformed. Transformed because the people of God are no longer identified by an ethnic identity, which is what the Old Testament Mosaic Law was given to define. They're identified by simple allegiance to Jesus from all peoples and all tribes and all tongues. And we are a lot of different people living in this world. But what you do find are some pretty clear echoes to these same three things. In the New Testament, you find directions about the proper ordering of worship that is to be carried out in God's church. We read about this especially in the pastoral epistles, but throughout the New Testament. We are given directions for establishing proper and qualified church officials. The New Testament calls them elders and deacons. And what about that sacrifice? What about that altar? Well, the New Testament makes it plain. Christ himself is to be proclaimed as the final and ultimate sacrifice for sins. There remains no more sacrifices 
to be made, praise be to God. The only and true sacrifice has already been made, Christ himself. He is to be proclaimed as the place where God and man will meet. And what about the ritual calendar, the feasts and festivals? Call them rules if you want, but what would life be without some celebration, without a little dessert after a rich meal? Some of you health nuts out there, you just need to indulge yourself sometimes and enjoy God's sweetness. God made a world full of bounty to be celebrated and to be enjoyed. Call them rules if you want, but I'll take them. Now, the regular celebration, of course, of the Lord's Supper and the weekly worship gathering is meant to infuse into our lives as Christians meaning, depth, identity. Know who you are in Christ. You need this. It's a celebration. It's a feast. It's a festival. We also find in these chapters not only proper rules, instructions for relating to God, maintaining worship with God, fellowship with God, but we also find in these chapters a second reason for God's laws in these days of fulfillment. Coming out and stemming from our fellowship with God, we find instructions in these chapters on fellowship with our fellow humanity, with our neighbors, with your brothers and sisters. This is why, especially in chapter 45, we find an emphasis on justice and equity. You see, in the kingdom of God, it matters not only that we maintain a proper and joyful fellowship with God, it also matters, oh, how it matters, that we maintain a proper fellowship with each other and with our fellow man. The fruit of the Spirit is given to us in order to direct our lives and our interactions with other people. All nine of the fruit of the Spirit are inherently social. They're how we interact with human beings. And because we believe as Christians that the kingdom of God is not mainly, and certainly not only, a spiritual reality, then living as citizens of the kingdom of God means we must take its real-world realities seriously. Radical love, like the world yearns for but cannot have. Eternal joy, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Peace, patience, of course, but also, throughout the New Testament, radical forgiveness. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Thank you, Clyde. Spot on every time. Radical allegiance to a kingdom that can never, never be co-opted or defined by some other kingdom of men, however much they may claim a Christian identity. So these two things inherently go together, and they are what God expects of us as citizens of his kingdom, to live in proper and joyful relationship with him in worship, and to live in proper relationship with each other, with our neighbors, 
So now lastly, how do we do that? We know that the law was given to us for instruction, for our good, not to earn our way into God's favor because he's already favored you. We know that we need it because we need instruction, don't we, on how to relate to God and to one another? I mean, just try that with anybody else. Say, I'll just, I'll relate to you on my terms. See how that's going to go for you. We need instruction on how to relate to one another. So that's what it's, that's why we need it. But now how do we do it? How do we keep God's law today? What, what form, what shape should Christian obedience take? How are we instructed to live? Well, Christians know where to start. We always start with Jesus. As the true temple of God, Jesus must take central place in our worship as well as in our obedience. So let me just remind you of some scriptures that you know well. In John 15, Jesus instructs all who are his disciples to abide in him. And he says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. You don't abide in Christ, you certainly cannot do what he demands, what he requires, what he expects, what he wants. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Which, of course, by this he means that we can do nothing that is truly fruitful. Nothing that will truly last. You can do all kinds of things without Christ. They'll all be in vain. Only in Christ will you find the ability to do that which will last forever. He does not want you to live your life in vain. That's why he calls you to abide in him. He does not simply want you to hold on white-knuckled until you die and go to heaven. He loves you too much. He wants as he's always planned, to extend his wise and gracious rule over his world through you and you and you. By this, my Father is glorified, Jesus explained. You want to know what pleases God? Here's what he says. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now, you can hear that as a rule if you want. You can feel burdened down by that if you'd like. But what an amazing privilege to be counted as one of his disciples, the Messiah of Israel, to be brought into the family of God through whom God now wants to extend his blessing to every nation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. You got that verse? You memorized that one. Ephesians 2.8. God's gift to you and to me who have been created in Christ Jesus is in verse 10. 
you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You can hear that as a rule if you want. You can take that as a law. Or knowing who you are in Christ, you can see the enormous privilege it is now to live a life of fruitfulness for the glory of God. But before you get to work, you better abide. When we separate Christian living from Christ, we end up in all sorts of wrong places. No wonder then so many atrocities have been done in the name of Christ. Church often has a black mark on us. We name the name of Christ, and then we go out and do works of darkness. Jesus predicted it would be so. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, when we get our eyes off Christ, we don't end up doing nothing. We get our instructions from someone else. Or for someplace else. And then no matter if you claim a Christian identity, you will end up working out of a different identity. And the devastation will be plain for all to see. So you've got to start with Jesus. You've got to go back to Jesus. You have to abide in Christ. It's the reason why God has given to us instructions for proper worship. We start by abiding in Christ, worshiping Christ. We have to go to the temple and receive our instructions through meditating on his word and in saying our prayers. How else will we know the right thing to do? Just take everybody else's opinion. Take a poll. Go to the word, meditation and prayer and say, oh God, show me what to do. Start with Christ. So all you got to do is read the Bible and pray. That's it. Is it really that simple? Well, yes and no. Remember, what we are after here is a relationship with the living God, not a set of impersonal rules to keep in order to keep them off our backs. What you're not going to find in the Bible, I can promise you this. I've read it a few times. What I can tell you is you're not going to find a direct answer to the very specific question that you're asking today, probably. Maybe you will. But that does not mean that the scriptures are of no help. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, again, I told you, familiar verses. John 15, Romans 8, Paul says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what he says. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In the flesh of the Messiah, Romans 8, 3 says, God condemned sin in his flesh, in the flesh of the Messiah. And then he goes on and says this, in order that 
the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in you. And then he tells us how. By no longer living according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So as we abide in Christ through his word and in prayer, as we come to the temple, guess who meets you in the temple? The God who lives there. The promise of the Holy Spirit's empowerment is what God says you can expect to receive. You come to worship me in the ways that I have outlined in the scriptures, I will meet you there. I will give you, through the empowerment of my Holy Spirit, the direction you need. That's his promise. And so we go to work. And yes, I mean that work that you have been given to do tomorrow and every day this week. You got your task list ready? You know what you're doing? And it makes no difference if that work is something you get paid to do or not. The work of the kingdom of God must be done at your job, but it also must be done at your home and in your neighborhood and on the playground. If you are not asleep, then you are at work. You're doing something. Everybody's busy. <laughs> You're occupying yourself. And God wants you to be about his business, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do it all to the glory of God. This is the law of the temple. Now, one final word. There is something else that is so central to this question of Christian living that it simply cannot be left unstated. And that is the importance, then, of the Christian community. Yes, Jesus loves you individually. Yes, he has given his Holy Spirit to you, to each one of you. Just imagine. But that also means that none of us possess the Holy Spirit by ourselves. <laughs> no one is brought into the kingdom of God alone. Did you hear me? No one is brought into the kingdom of God alone. A kingdom of isolation was no paradise for Elsa and Frozen. And it won't be for you either. It will only further the devastation of the world. Sometimes Disney kind of gets it sort of right. As difficult as it is then to be together with our brothers and, sis and sisters, it is an essential ingredient of the Christian life. Why? Because you and your brother and sister are both indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You want to encounter God? You want to meet God? You meet him in his temple. You meet them, you meet him in your brother and sister as well. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. Man was created a body. The Son of God appeared on earth in the body. He was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer receives the Lord Christ in the body. And the resurrection of the dead will bring about the perfected fellowship of God's spiritual, physical creatures. The believer, therefore, lauds the creator, the redeemer, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the bodily presence of a brother or sister. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile, 
sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Too many times we find ourselves in places where we begin to wonder if God has abandoned us. We begin to doubt his love. But God is there. In the person of your brother and sister in Christ, indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, God is there. He intends for us to meet him in the fellowship of the saints, which is why he commands us, of course, call it a rule if you want, to not forsake the assembling of the believers together. So we keep his commandments with our eyes on Christ, empowered by his spirit, and in the counsel of our fellow Christians, and God's promise to you and to me, who live in this time of fulfillment, is that he is extending his wise rule and reign in us and through us for the sake of the world. So get to work. It's the law of the temple. And by his grace, he will accomplish his purposes through us. Let us pray. So Father in heaven, may we begin to see again the great reality, the great story of God promised to Israel, brought to its fulfillment in the Messiah of Israel, and then take our place there. We've been brought near by grace. We have been saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing. It's the work of God. We are a new creation in Christ, the workmanship of God, to do the good deeds you have prepared for us to do. What an amazing privilege. Now I know, I know well, that many of my brothers and sisters struggle to hear words of expectation, words of command, and feel anything but guilt and shame. I pray today with eyes firmly fixed on Christ, they will see nothing but the Father's love. A God who so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But in this life you've given us, eternal life in Christ, what an amazing privilege to now rule and reign with you in your world by your grace, to extend the, the gracious realities of the kingdom of God with the promise that it will not be in vain. Oh, Lord Jesus, shape us and form us as your disciples. May we sit with you today, abide with you long enough that we might then take your life and believing in who you are, find the power of your spirit at work within us to proclaim the excellencies of the true God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.